drive-by cinema. Three nachos and a foaming thermos of fun. Hello there. It's Drive-By Cinema. It's season three. It's episode 44. This is Paul. Hi, I'm the co-host here. I'm Rick. And we are watching movies so that you don't have to. Absolutely. And a calling, I think. What a calling to be called to. Paul, mm-hmm. how are you doing mm-hmm. this week? Your <laughs> car isn't working. My car's blown up, yeah. That's not very convenient. No, but I've got a solution. I take the train halfway with my bike. Because TransPennine said, you've got to put your bike before you come on. Then I realised it's not TransPennine. It's Northern Trains. Northern Trains very bike friendly. Bring your bike whenever you want. We've only got three places, but you don't need to book in advance. So I'm going most of the way on train very quickly. 12 minutes instead of 18 in the car. And I'm putting my clips and hopping on my bike and do the last two miles every day on the push bike. And you fixed your puncher, obviously. Yeah. yeah. Well, did I talk about the potential of frozen magnetic brake blocks? Yeah. So why are your bike brakes? Why are they magnetic? They're disc brakes. Right. Why does that make them magnetic, necessarily? Don't know. Do they work using magnetic braking? I don't know. You know, eddy currents. That trick that they do where they get a copper tube and they drop... I, I, I very much doubt it. I mean, they're tiny little little things. Either they're magnets or the surfaces are so flush that, they, you know, when smooth surfaces get together, they stick, don't they? Ah, now you're talking a very interesting subject. I don't know what that is, though. That is a phenomena that is used by things called gauge blocks. Yeah, now you think smooth things would slip over each other, but no, when they're really smooth, they stick, don't they? So gauge blocks are engineering measurement tools. Mm -hmm. Measurement is a really interesting subject, right? How do you know how long something is? Well, you could get a ruler, but how do you know that the ruler is correctly uh, calibrated? And how do you know when you're looking at a ruler whether it's the start of the little black line or the end of the line that represents the millimetre that you want. You don't. All of engineering relies on some reference measurements, right? Yeah. And in a precision engineering shop, mm-hmm. one of the reference measurements will be gauge blocks. And gauge blocks are very, very precise. Oh, I've seen them. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry, pieces of metal That's right. of varying lengths in a velvet-lined wooden box, usually. That's right. It has to be kept at a constant temperature. There are only the right length at a certain temperature, that's right. And they are polished smooth on the ends, very, very smooth. And they exhibit a phenomena called ringing, ah. with a W, I think, whereby you can take two of your gauge blocks, so say you want particular measurement, like 15 centimetres. You take squidge ten- them. You have to squidge them. You do squidge them. You push them together. And, and you kind of often t- twist them. Twist, yeah. And they will stick without any apparent adhesive. Amazing. And the question is, how do they stick together? What would your guess be, Paul? With your physics hat on? I don't know, really. You're not alone. I don't think very many people do know. Why it works. There's several competing ideas and theories, and I've seen people try to test them and stuff. 
One idea is that it's to do with air pressure. That is to ah. say, they're so precisely milled no air the pockets, edges, yeah, no. that there's no air in between, and mm. so the two pieces are kept together by the air around. I'm not sure that's going to work, though, is it? I've seen someone ring blocks together in a vacuum. They put them in a vacuum chamber. They stay stuck together. I mean, the differential pressure is only going to be the difference in pressure from, from where they're joined to the end, the lower or the upper end of the, of the blocks, isn't it? Sure, but it's it, it could be considerable. I mean, it's oh, okay. several grams of force, isn't it, probably, for right. the surface area of a typical gauge block. I imagine. We could probably work it out. I haven't. I'm doing this off the cuff here. <laughs> I, I, another... rather, I rather imagine it's just the fact, you know, if you've got it smooth, then the layers are, you know, particularly level. So you can get something approaching metallic bonding. Uh, Some kind of electrostatic bonding you're talking mm. about. But here's another idea. And that is, it is down to um, uh, surface tension of the light engineering oil that I think you keep on the gauge blocks uh-huh. so they don't corrode. With you. I, th- I think basically there's a one molecule thick layer of oil on well-kept gauge block surfaces. Mm-hmm. I think you have to polish them with a certain special o- oil treat. Brasso, yeah, brasso. To keep them in good working order. I don't think you use brasso. <laughs> Sorry. I'm oh, not at least sure. I love the smell of brasso. Can oh, I smell... Really? Yeah, a bit, a bit like cat's urine, didn't it? <laughs> That's a blast from the past. I bet, I bet nobody of the younger generation ever used Brasso to polish their ornaments anymore, do they? How do we get onto gauge blocks, anyway? My, my... Oh, your, your disc breaks disc on your Anyway, on so I, I was in a right panic, and I ordered the little separator, little orange plastic separator or spacer, four pounds, unbelievably. Apparently, you can use a piece of cardboard instead. He cut it the right thickness, and it came. No shit. Um, and it came too late anyway. But which time I wish I hadn't ordered because mine are not hydraulic. Mine are the sort of squidger lever and the cable. wire yeah. cable, cable pull kind of thing. Cable activated. I don't know how yeah. that changes the mechanism of the two blocks, but apparently it means that they can't stick together. In any case, huh. I'd have to be a numpty press the brakes to get them to squeeze together anyway, which I didn't. The trick, I, though, I mean, so I, I did everything except, you know, I, I kind of like, because it's been like two or three years since I changed the tyre. Like, what you're supposed to do is, I got it off okay, you know, but but what you're supposed to do is kind of put the inner tube in and slightly inflate it and then put the tyre to one side of the wheel, kind of hook it over one side. I managed to kind of hook it over both sides at one point, so it was like, it was really stretched on at one point, couldn't be taken off. But I kind of got through it all eventually. Yeah. Except, of course, that last thing where you've got to put the wheel back in the derailleur, and it's never clear do you pull the derailleur, because the derailleur's got that double cog thing. Do you pull the double cog thing up or down or out? And, you know. and I always say, pay attention while you're doing it so you remember which way you pulled it. And I never ah. remember which way I pulled it. Well, what you should do, Paul, is take a little video with your camera, with your phone That's camera. That's a good idea. And you can watch it back. Whenever you're doing any kind of manual taking apart work, That's you should always video idea. what you That's an incredible idea, Richard. Thank you. Wow. Hey, wow. Why didn't nobody think of that? Can I tell you a dumb thing that I used to think? Because of bicycles, I used to think that my car tyres had inner tubes. Right. And I think they did maybe 80 years ago. 
Yeah, when they used things resembling bicycle wheels. Well, remember, I mean, car wheels used to be a heck of a lot thinner, didn't they? But, I mean, like, with an alloy wheel these days, a modern alloy wheel, it's just the tyre on the alloy that makes a seal, isn't it? It's amazing, really. That is crazy, isn't it? And, yeah, I'm not sure how they retain. I suppose it's due to the pressure. Well, they don't. You have to pump them up every four weeks, don't you? (laughs) For your car, yes. Do you not check your do you not check your, check your tire regularly? Your pressure? Not that regularly, no. I mean, it just becomes no. I mean, it, oh, I think you'll find a definite five or ten percent drop. You may be right, but it's not radical. For the price of twenty pence, Richard, you could you know get lots of fuel economy there that you're missing out on. Helpful advice, Paul. And on that note, why not listen to some music? Talking about petrol car, petrol engine efficiency, Richard, I've been very efficient in not replacing our music cards. I'm almost hyper-milling our music here, aren't I? <laughs> Isn't it hyper-miling? Oh, is that what it is? Yeah, because you're trying to get more miles to the game. Oh, I think it's that's what the single L's about. <laughs> not sure. Like, oh, maybe they spelled it wrong in the thing I was reading. Right, okay, so yeah, so we're not supposed to talk about this after the music, are we? We're supposed to religiously talk about... About the what? movie at hand. The movie at hand. To everyone's surprise, we're suddenly now going to talk about the movie that we watched. Yeah. <laughs> and what is it called, Paul? It is called, it has been called, or will be called, White Noise. This is an adaptation from a book from the 1980s, as we'll see. Yes, by an author who I've read quite a lot of. Not oh, this really? Thing. Yes. D- yeah, Don yeah, DeLillo, yeah. is he? Don DeLillo, Yeah. So you're familiar with his work. Interesting. I am because Thomas, I never know how to pronounce his name, Thomas Pynchon or Panchon. I don't know how to, like the the novelist celebra of the late 70s, early 80s. He was very much in his postmodern style. I was going to say, it's a, a much lauded postmodern novel, White Noise, right? At which point I do feel it seems necessary, does it not, to me, to define what postmodern is. We always do this and we, always, we never get it right. So, Well, that's because postmodernism means different things in different genres, doesn't it? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So, for instance, in architecture, postmodernism is a response to modernist architecture. Modernist architecture is usually unadorned, functional minimalism, isn't it? Concrete yeah. and glass and that kind of thing, which replaces all of the crenellations of Gothic and Victorian and classical stuff that we've been messing with for hundreds of years prior to modernism. Postmodernism then is modern buildings which now have adornments on them, which often pick and choose from a grab bag of lots of different sources and influences and yes. shove them all together on one unsightly building. <laughs> so architecture would be a good example of where postmodernism is easy to understand. Easy to understand, I, yes. I think Memphis, the Memphis Designs team is another easy example. Is that the 80s, like, bold colours The 80s thing, where the bold colours, and they've got, like, these sort of semi-African sort of squiggles on the wallpaper yes, kind of yeah. stuff. And okay. they've also got the very bold kind of strictly non-functional lamps and desks, kind of angle poises that don't, pointing angle, angles, you know, and, and desks that have strange curves to them, okay? So a complete rejection of the idea that form should follow 
function. Yeah. So that's another way, it's in another area where it's easy to understand what postmodernism is. I think when it comes to literature, yes. it's maybe not so easy to to define, particularly because everybody jumped on the bandwagon. I mean, Martin Amos has just passed away. I, I think Money, which is lauded as his greatest novel, was his first attempt at serious postmodernism. Why? Because he's writing a novel with a writer called Martin Amos in it, hmm. who's writing about the lead character. Right. And everything that happens in the novel is not actually played by, if you like, if you suspend disbelief for a moment, by real characters, but by actors who are duping the lead character who's not in the know about this. So it's very mise-en-scene. It's very mirrors in mirrors in mirrors in mirrors. And I think sort of that, that, that kind of recursive element. Self-referential. Self-referentiality yeah, yeah. is, I think, what defines postmodern literature more than anything else. But also, I think it's the... Isn't it the idea that there is no inherent meaning that the author is necessarily... Sure, and then those big debates about narrator's voice and authorial voice come in, particularly Martin Amis, because his portrayal of men was quite ugly, and that's when he fell out of favour. I think in his defence he was saying, well, you know, is it me talking? Probably not. Am I at distance to my characters? Yeah, I mean, he, I mean there's no doubt that John Self in the in the novel is, is portrayed as being a horrendous pig, you know. So so I don't know about that kind of stuff. But I think really postmodern stems to three help uh, French philosophers. When we talk about philosophy, postmodern becomes... Derrida. Yeah, Derrida and Lacan. Maybe Lacan uh-huh. was post-structuralist. I don't know. This is the point where it all gets very fuzzy. And I think if you delve into philosophy, then it becomes even more difficult to say what postmodern is. I think the sign and signifier that links into all that stuff we've been talking about, you know, architectural vernacular, not meaning anything anymore. Memphis design, you know, things not having to do what they look like they're supposed to be doing. I think it all does kind of tie in, but it's a very, I think it's all very loosely convened towards the end of the 80s with what, what, what was the idea? Death of history, death of time. Overload of information, all that kind of stuff kind of flew together. And I think everybody jumped on the bandwagon, didn't they? The interesting thing is, now we're looking at this adapted into cinema. Yes. Cinema, cinema's only really had a modernist era. I mean, you can't, I don't think there is a non-modern cinema, right? It, the whole project of cinema, cinematography. It's terribly modern, yeah. It's yeah. modern. I think it's all modernism. Uh, I, mean, I mean, its centres don't have any, by definition, they are not traditional roots, sources or, or, or ground swellings of culture. I mean, Hollywood is literally just a hill outside Los Angeles where the land was cheap and you could film stuff easily. And so you can, of course, do postmodernism in cinema, and they have done, and we've probably seen several postmodern movies in this series, I'm sure. Oh, well, I mean, back when I really sort of was into arty films... Like, I think one of the one of the famous proponents, and he was famous for a while, was Wong Kar Wai in Hong Kong, uh, who does very, very I mean, they're 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 undeniably postmodern films. How do you identify a postmodern film then? What's the qualities of his film? Even with a budget, they're kind of shot like it's Network 7 on BBC <laughs> 2. That would be my defining. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's like Take Hill Street Blues and their attitude towards sort of cameras and rolling cameras and 
and cut shots and that kind of thing and just make it all shaky, put some grainy footage in and then really have characters that don't really develop and just appear willy-nilly. And of course, have several. I think the most important thing is to have several narrative threads that overlap but don't necessarily make any sense. Mulholland Drive, David Lynch film that we saw. Of course, the classic one with a seven-minute intro. Robert Altman's, what's it called? Really famous, escapes me. So I've been I've been hearing that now in cinema, we've actually got a response to postmodernism, which, which is, is called metamodernism. Oh, and an example of a classic, a, a new classic metamodern film is, say, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. So the yeah. idea is that sure, it has a lot of postmodern ideas. You know, it's taking all these film ideas and shoving them in and and using them in a knowing and genre-savvy way. And we all understand that they're using film tropes. But it's not that there is no plot or narrative or they're not trying to say something. That film is actually about, you know, a mother and daughter kind of reconciling in the difficult relationship. And yeah, so there's heart and earnestness to the film I don't think you would find in a post a raw postmodern film. A postmodern film would not let itself take itself so seriously. It wouldn't. It wouldn't have that heart or earnestness to it. But a so there'd be film, there'd be elements of Terry Christian and the word to a postmodern film. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah. I think so. Yeah. There's an element of crapness to postmodern, isn't there? So there you go. Metamodern is the the new. It's the response to postmodernism in new cinema. To summarise, you're saying postmodernism that takes itself too seriously. In a sense, yes, because I think they're trying to puncture some of the conventions, aren't they? Postmodernism is rather po-facedly saying, you know, it's distancing itself from the old Hollywood, which is modern film, which is all about story and heart and, you know, the guy winning the girl and saving the world or whatever. Postmodernism wouldn't let itself do that, I don't think. Yeah, flawed characters, definitely. Shortcuts by Robert Altman, I think, you know, might be seen as a classic sort of... He wasn't really particularly postmodern director, but might be seen as, you know, his foray into postmodernism. So I think metamodernism is telling those old-fashioned stories with postmodern techniques, I think. And, of course, postmodernism jumped into kitschness and quaintery, like, for example, Tarantino. Very uh, quaint, very kitsch, you know. Yeah, yeah. And again, took vernacular modernist styles, but kind of not so much parried them, parried them, but sampled them, yeah. So a sampling attitude also, I think, defines both. Remixing, yeah. Remixing, yeah. But I think metamodernism is where all of this death of genre stuff is coming from. I, I was going to say, Richard, your, yeah. your, your continuous theme here, death of genre, yeah. All of that said, White Noise, the it's novel... postmodern. 1980s. Is a postmodern novel post-modern now being movie. turned or metamodern? I'd say not totally successfully, if I'm honest, into mm-hmm. a film. Uh-huh. We, can, we can talk about why that might be. Well, I think we mentioned that June was seen as the impossible movie. Yeah. Yes, you think and this, this is novel impossible. was billed yeah. as like the not the novel we'd all like to make as filmmakers, but how would you ever make it as a movie? A postmodern story is not about anything, is it? That's the thing. No. And, uh, at every stage through this story that we're about to describe, mm-hmm. I'm going to have to end every sentence with, but that's not what it's really about. <laughs> and that invites the question. I mean, this, this movie does suffer from plot diarrhoea, doesn't it? I mean, 
it just splats all over the place. There are many things that happen. Like, there's a point where they talk about killers and dyers, and I can't remember if it was in the Hitler scene or when he meets, like, the culty kind of people his wife's been hanging out with. Because there's just so much going on and everything's referencing everything and everything's kind of like a mirror of other things that it kind of all becomes a little bit dizzying and quite frankly confusing. Now, the protagonist, Jack, is a faculty member at a particular college. I think it's called College on the Hill, Mm -hmm. which I presume is what it's called in the novel, which is an incredibly postmodern thing to call call a college. A great chance for Jeff Goldblum to show his new... His new reconstructed surgery. <laughs> this is Adam Driver, of oh. course. As you said, the young Jeff Goldblum. I actually thought it was... I actually thought for a moment it was like, wow, that's the American Alan Partridge. But the- <laughs> No, well, he does do a very good Alan Partridge. Yeah, you're right. It's actually quite a good acting piece from Adam Driver, I think. Adam Driver. Is he a big name? Well, he made it big in the Star Wars reboot sequels, didn't he? Because we've discussed this before the start of the podcast, but this budgeted out at $100 million. Well, that is no small budget. I I can't really see where the money went, apart from paying actors. There's a lot of extras and a lot of stunts actually involved. You wouldn't think so, would you? But there was. And for all their efforts, do you know how much they made at the box office, Richard? Well, let's come back to that at the end, shall we, Paul? Let's play the box office game at the end. We should start doing cahoots on this. I don't know what, what cahoots is. Like, you know, like quizzes or block it. Oh, right. Yes, I see. Yeah. yeah. Like a jackbox. We should start a jackbox quiz on, like, trivia. <laughs> Surprising <laughs> trivia about the movie, can't <laughs> well, it's just, okay, yeah, sure. I, I agree. So I think at the start of the movie, he's talking to his friend in the faculty, played by uh, Don Cheadle. Yeah. Who is an, an expert in Elvis. Whereas Jack is an expert in Hitler studies. I may have said that already at the College on the Hill. Well, Don Cheadle is the guy who plays Professor Murray Siskind. Yeah. Uh, he's saying something at, at the start. I think he's laying out his thesis, isn't he? He's saying mm-hmm. car crashes in cinema are American optimism. Do you think we're going to get car crashes sometime in this movie, Richard, in this weird meta-modern, postmodern kind of self, oh. self-referentiality? self I, I mean, it, we're probably it's almost... It's on the cards, let's put it that way. So we get a chapter heading. Presumably this is from the book as well. Waves and Radiation. I've never read this book. I I read something about a 14-year-old prodigy when I thought I might become a scientific prodigy (laughs) years and years ago. But it's a really good novel, actually. But again, kind of all over the place and very long. It's first day of college and all the parents are dropping their kids off. And Jack... Adam Driver, as Jack, he's going back home and he's talking to his wife, played by Greta Gerwig, I think. Greta Gerwig, and her name is Bab or Babette, or Babs. Babs, Baba, Babette, yeah. Mm -hmm. He's telling her all about first day of college. Apparently she likes to see it, but she's not getting to see it this time. I love all of the family scenes in this film. I really like the the cross-cut dialogue... They're all talking over one another. All his kids the are The grotesqueness of the children. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Heinrich and the older boys may be the most obviously sort of intellectually precocious. We discover, as an audience, really early on, that his wife is taking a drug called Dilar. Oh, thank you for remembering it. Dilar, with a Y. Dilar. Yeah. And we know that the elder daughter, Denise, is 
observing her mum taking Dylar. Can we just get and back he- to the, the other guy, Siskin's thesis? It's the, the, the orgy of violence in American car crashes and movies is a celebration of life. Was that his, you know, terribly postmodern thesis, wasn't it? Well, this is like Cronenberg and Crash, isn't it? Yeah. Same kind of idea going on there. The celebration of freedom, you know. Anyway, sorry. So you're introducing the family, Richard. We then see Jack and Babette discussing things in bed, and they're talking about death, actually. She's also talking about the fact she doesn't like the word in porn novels, inside me. (laughs) She does say that, yes. She's quite, quite clear that she doesn't want to see that in her erotic fiction, yes. Yeah, they talk, well, so Entering just, I, her. I wasn't paying attention. Entering what they talking her. about death about in the first in the first in the first part. It's quite an important element of this film, Paul. And one of the important elements of the novel is a discussion of mortality and death. Yeah. They're discussing how they wouldn't want to live without the other, but they don't want to die either. They don't want to die first because they're afraid of death, but they don't want to go on without their partner. So that's it's a catch twenty two, isn't it? Mm. But let's just underscore they're afraid of death. And this is important. Because fear of death is an important theme of this film. Mm. I think we see Jack now doing one of his classes about Nazi Germany. And he's saying all plots move deathward. And he's also taking German lessons. Seems to be important for his academical career. But he's terrible at pronouncing any German word that he's given. <laughs> well, he says, he, he goes to secret German lessons, doesn't he? To, yes. to, to a recent German immigrant and says, you know, I, I'm head of Hitler studies, a, a topic and a, 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 a subject that he's invented for himself. And, uh, and yeah, so he goes for rudimentary German lessons. His daughter tips him off about Babette taking this dialogue drug. That's right, Denise, yeah. And... Babette is complaining about her memory. She apparently is suffering from memory losses. But Dylar, they look it up, don't they, in the pharmacopoeia. Mm-hmm. You can't find any evidence that there is a drug called Dylar. And so it's a bit of a mystery what this is and where she's getting it from. And then there's a moment where all the kids get excited because they're going to watch plane crash footage on TV. <laughs> <laughs> We head back to college because Siskin says, hey, Jack, can you drop in on my inaugural lecture? He's trying to get his Elvis studies stuff going, and going, isn't he? he Elvis says, is my Hitler, he says. Elvis is my Hitler. You drop in, bring some of your star potential and see if we can get some get something going. And you, can weirdly, tell this film, it, hmm. you can tell this film is from a book, from a good writer, right? Because yeah. it's really quotable. It's full of great quotes. And all of the dialogue is snappy and and not naturalistic, though, I stress. Mm -hmm. It is all, like, very stagey, very prosy, isn't it, all of the dialogue, including in the family, where, you know, everyone speaks like like they're poets. But (laughs) it's all very quotable. Like, there's a bit where they're chatting with the faculty members and somebody says something about a a woman being being naked. Oh, sorry. Was was she naked? To the waist. From which direction? From which direction, (laughs) There's a moment as well, early in this chapter, where Jack is asleep at night. He's having trouble. He seems to be having trouble breathing. That's right. He wakes up in the middle of the night. It's 2.05 a.m. I think his wife is not in bed beside him. And he looks around the room and there's someone sitting in a chair opposite. Yeah. 
it's someone with a scar on their hand. And this figure gets up and comes, lies in the bed next to him with the sheet over their face. That's right. I think and it's really him. horror thing, like it's coming out of the sheet at him. And then he wakes up and you realise it's all been a dream. A mysterious man, I think it is, isn't it? So, some sort of foreshadowing going on there. We head back to college and Siskind is waiting for Jack to turn up to his inaugural lecture. And then, weirdly, Jack <laughs> helps him, but also competes with him at the same time, where they're doing this wonderful thing where they're both talking about different people, Elvis and Hitler. And it's supposed yeah. choreographed whereby the end of it... As they're circling each other and talking <laughs> over each other, they both make the point that are we not just the same as the crowds before Hitler? Haven't we all tried to press our flesh towards Elvis or whichever pop star we admire? Kind of thing. Uh, he, he comes in, whole... he he re-enters the lecture hall, doesn't he? <laughs> Through the window, wearing his academical gown, <laughs> crouched. <laughs> and I think there's supposed to be all kinds of resonance there. The Hitler-esque way that he's delivering, kind of thing. The sway that he has over the crowd. And then, of course, all the students come forward and press their flesh on the two adored professors. And, of course, Elvis Studies, presumably, is born as a result. This is all intercut, by the way, with action scenes. And you're asking where all the budget for this went. With action scenes from the next major crash of this film, which is a flammable tanker truck is being driven by... <laughs> A driver who is more interested in fishing a bottle of whiskey from the seat next to him. I've been told it's a commonplace event back then, you know. He is not therefore looking when a train hauling itself a load of chemical tankers crosses his path in front of him and they collide. Too late, yeah. And there's an enormous pileup of train and tanker and eventually <laughs> it ignites an enormous plume of smoke. Now they do a wonderful thing here, Dan. The way that the words are changed in the news reports, they play on this so much, which I guess is a deeply postmodern moment in the movie, isn't it? Well, the next chapter is called Airborne Toxic Event, Mm -hmm. which is what they changed huge plume of black smoke to in one of the news reports. So this is where Heinrich, the eldest son, kind of really comes into his own here because he's got precocious commentary about what's going on and his own insight into the word massage that's going on across the media. This is pro- perhaps the most modern bit of this film, which, mm. because the novel is from the 80s... And because felt, COVID, of course. Yeah, true. But I felt a lot of this film felt like a period piece and didn't really feel all that relevant. There's quite a lot of focus on consumerism, which is a word you don't hear very often these days. You don't, know, no. no. I think in those days, in the 80s, consumerism was taken to mean like the bad side of capitalism. Mm -hmm. I think nowadays we just recognise that consumerism is just capitalism working. Well, we've had sex in the city, haven't we? Sex in the city has told us that consumerism can work. Retail therapy can work, kind of thing. Whether it does or not, but we've convinced ourselves. I mean, the the final point of the thesis of the movie is we need to believe, isn't it? As they kind of plot, plot spoiler, we kind of finish with a Esther Williams synchronized swimming but no water dance off oh, in the God. supermarket. We've got, yeah. we've got to come to that. Yeah, yeah. With some brilliant music backdrop. Okay. But yeah, so consumerism may be viewed in the 80s way as a death of moralism and a death of meaning. But yeah, it's very much pursued, I think, throughout, throughout, this, throughout this novel. 
a uh, lot of movie. the scenes in this film take place in the supermarket in A&P, I think it's called, mm-hmm. in the film, where he's discussing things with Murray, and Murray will be... He says something about the supermarket being, you know, filled with ideas, bombarding you with a sort of radioactive ideas, as it were, of of consumerism, effectively. There are lots of good lines and good ideas, actually, aren't there? But as you say, quite old-fashioned ideas. Back in the day when late night on Channel 4, people would talk and get drunk over wine. <laughs> talk seriously. I mean, we've moved into an era of managed sound bites, haven't we? Which the yes. second part talks about, about massage language and how language is so fluffy and cotton woolly these days, it doesn't really mean anything. It's all marshmallow language, isn't it? Okay. I mean, you know, the, if you, I mean, if you go back to like the 70s and you see Thatcher being interviewed on News Round, like the way she answered questions to children, whether or not you agree with the politics, was no, but evidently, it was more considered and yeah, evidently of a much yeah. higher order than anything you would hear from any, any politician today. You know. Yeah, yeah. Well, these days the way it's done is it's a strictly managed PR exercise, isn't it? Where they're given a series of things they have to say. To hit, yeah, and avoid and, the question. And, and what they do is there somebody in their earpiece? No, no, no. They've just been heavily drilled really? to repeat the same sound bites to make sure they get on the news. Wow. So no matter what question they get asked, if they say the same thing, they'll hit the target. Yeah. What can the news do? That, you know, if they want to show the Prime Minister or the Secretary of State for whatever it is, the, the only thing they're saying is that thing over and over again. And, wow. of course, the, the worst-case scenario for them, I suppose, is where they just show the whole interview, where they're actually just repeating the points. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's too long. Like Nobody's some laughing clown. Uh, yeah. Kind of thing. So they're watching this plume of chemicals, and listening yes. to the news, and as the news is saying things about, you know, possible symptoms... This is so funny. They're all starting to develop these symptoms. Yes, which particularly is, the older girl, yeah. It's, it's like a thing out of airplane. Clubby hands, yeah. you know, uh, vomiting. And, and they mentioned uh, deja vu. That's one of the symptoms. Which Heinrich's, like Heinrich's saying she's displaying outdated symptoms, Dad. Outdated <laughs> symptoms, yeah. So, and so it's, it's renamed, isn't it? Three times, I think, from... From bilious plume to something else, finally to airborne toxic event. And the danger level goes down, and then suddenly there are sirens in the streets after some very funny familial sort of scenes here, where the is it the head sheriff or something is zooming through in his car with a with a with a, with a tannoy, yeah. Screaming, yeah. get out of here now, everybody. They pile into their station wagon, which I think mm-hmm. is American for a state car, isn't it? It is. They pile out into a huge traffic jam. And the kids say something really interesting, which is, you know, they're looking around at the other cars. The kids say so many classic lines in this movie. Oh, they're, they're the wisest ones in the film, mm. aren't they? And they, they say they want to know how scared to be. So they're looking <laughs> for everybody else. That is so well observed. And it is, it's how people really behave, isn't it? I mean, it's also that- how professor families behave. So the fact they were last to leave the house. <laughs> and the kids are like saying, is there no, is there no danger here? And, the, and both mother and father are like, well, there's probably no danger. It's fine. It's a still day. It's not going to blow this way. Yeah, it's all really well observed and really enjoyable. I thought, I, I thought this part of the movie I thought was maybe the most convincing and the most enjoyable and the most easy to watch. The radio now is telling everyone to stay indoors. 
and they're all out in this traffic jam. And we now get the next car crash happen, don't we? Because a car flips over. I'm not quite sure what the cause of that was. Are they told to meet up at the Chinese restaurant out of town? Is that their quarantine zone? No, because they go to another quarantine they zone do. first. There's some funny they? dialogue about Chinese restaurant because they're like, isn't that the one with the three live deer outside? They're like, yeah, yeah, it is. So there's all this uh, sort of interesting sort of whimsical dialogue that's going on at the same time. Jack is seeing Baba take one of these pills, but she denies it. In fact, mm-hmm. she gaslights him. She says she didn't take a pill. It was just a... She, in fact, she says it's a lifesaver, Paul, which you now know, of course, is American for polo mint. Is that polo mint? Well, of course, yeah, life ring. Mm. They have to stop for gas, which they do. And while they do that, a rather theatrical-looking dark cloud hovers over. Obscures Jack. the neon of the garage. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. Presumably Jack the... is caught out in its chemical chemical downpour. And symbolically, it obscures the Shell logo, doesn't mm-hmm. it? it does. You know, this book was going to be called Panasonic, but there was obviously concerns about trademarking, which is how it ended up being called White Noise. Again, it's a consumerism type thing, isn't it, I suppose? And we see clouds rolling over all of this traffic jam stuff, don't we? They wait in the jam, there's really heavy rain, and they arrive at an evacuation point, which was a summer camp called Camp Daffodil, I think. <laughs> no, it's not this. Is it this camp where they told you not leaving, even if you want to? Or is that the one afterwards? I can't quite remember. I think that's the next place. The next actually, one. Yeah. But they are allowed out, aren't they? And they go and get a coffee and stuff, and there's loads of people hanging around in the public, the community sort of hall areas of this place. Does he? Because he confessed that he was inadvertently exposed to the cloud. That's right, yeah. Because they get interviewed by the Simuvac team, who are Mm -hmm. a simulated evacuation team, who were going to be holding a simulated evacuation. (laughs) This is so postmodern. But because a real event happened, now they're doing a real event as their simulated evacuation. Jack asked some elementary problem questions like, so is that a real computer and real data you're using there? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Just get a particularly straight answer. But he, yeah. He's told that because of his exposure, he might have long-term effects, but they'll only know in 15 years. 15 years, <laughs> yeah. So lots of quite, quite funny gags here. And serious gags, I guess. Murray is there, and he's asking if there's any examples of deja vu in that group. And he's, he asks that twice, hilariously. <laughs> oh, I thought he was being witty. Yeah, I think he is being... Oh, he's being witty, okay. I think he is right. being witty. Oh, okay. But you can't tell, can you? We can't tell. Heinrich, the I... older boy, has like <laughs> he has become some sort of airborne toxic events sage, hasn't he? He's lecturing everybody about the potential dangers of this thing. That's right. Uh, and uh, there's quite a cute moment where the both parents say, should we go and like, admire him? And they're like, no, 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 just leave him to his thing. Jack confides in Murray. He tells him that he's been told he's got this... Stuff he's been infected. He says he may die at seventy, but even if he does, the chemical will still be in him. And Murray gives him a small pistol and says, "Maybe yeah. you can kill death," which becomes important later. It does. Now we get the first of an American car crash chase thing, don't we? The Murray would be happy at this point because some people try to escape the camp. Is that right? His daughter wakes him up when he's asleep saying that everyone is leaving in panic. Why? Okay. And then they they leave the place. Everyone is running 
in every which direction. I see, and people crashing into trees. Quite some, quite <laughs> funny. Some really quite funny moments here. Again, he there's decides, another big dollop des- of budget is being burnt here. I think I would suggest. Ah, <laughs> right, and so he decides to follow the jeep with the the Land uh, Rover. The, the survivalist Rover guy, yeah. With the yeah. survivalist stickers and the free gun stickers. Okay, says, I, get, I guess that guy knows where he's going. So there's a comical moment where I've got this, you know, rather pudgy, soft suspension station wagon trying to make it through the forest. And many misturns later, they end up floating down a creek or a river, don't they? They float down a river, that's right. They manage to drift around and drive out. And then doing a sort of Dukes of Hazard style jump into a cornfield. And then back into the queue. Straight back in, into the queue. <laughs> so I guess there's some postmodern observations there, aren't there? Uh, they all wind up in Iron City, apparently, where the refugees are. Ah, being thank put. you. They get put in like a gym or a boxing kind of gym, I think it is. And they're told they a... cannot leave this under any circumstance. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And they hear this rumour that they're dropping technicians to plant microorganisms in the cloud. And then this guy comes up uh, lamenting the lack of coverage on the television. He gives this grand speech. Mm-hmm. But it's obvious that he's got deja vu. He says that he's seen Jack before and he's given this speech before. Whoa. So I get the sense that he's suffering from this deja vu thing. Apparently it's nine days before they could go back home. But then I that's see. kind of the end of that entire incident, isn't it? Before chapter three begins. Yes. Entitled Dilarama. Dilarama. So they're back at home, and everything seems to be going swimmingly for everybody apart from Babette, from Babs. Yeah. Who is, I mean, she's spaced out the best of times, but now she's just, she's just a gap in the air, isn't she? Well, Jack thinks she's different since the event, doesn't, doesn't he? I'm not really sure how it develops. I, I, I kind of felt it fell apart a bit, a little bit here, the movie. It lost its momentum. I'm not really sure. I, I was confused about this third part. There's a good line when they're in the supermarket because he's talking to Murray. Murray's explaining how his big academic rival in the Elvis field is dead, lost in the Malibu surf. Jack can't <laughs> believe a big guy like that could die. <laughs> He sees this weird guy in shorts who had yes, previously that's it. Okay, he yeah. previously rescued his daughter's bunny when they were all evacuating that's right, yeah. Camp Daffodil. But there's this great announcement coming over coming over the I think it's the supermarket Tenoi saying disregard the last announcement. Disregard. <laughs> Not regard it, regard it. Don't you? <laughs> <laughs> so again, more postmodern whimsy. Well, I guess it's just fun. Some of this could just be fun, couldn't it? But maybe there's messages in there. I don't know. Maybe we're not supposed to. Maybe it's supposed to be a kaleidoscope of messages. I don't really know how it resolves. You know, I mean, that confesses to her dialogue use, which is all Well, they confront her, don't they? They have, a, like, an intervention. And she spills it, doesn't she? She says, look, I joined the clinical trial because I was afraid of death. Yeah. She saw an advert in a newspaper saying, are you afraid of death kind of thing. She joined up. When the trial wasn't working, she said, let me continue. And she had transactional sex in order to continue the supply of the drug. Yeah, so one of the guys in this study, she would go have sex with him, get more of these pills, and that's what she's been taking. And she's taking these pills for what condition? Fear of death. That's what what the pill is supposed to cure. (laughs) 
<laughs> but he doesn't, as it turns out. Anyway, Jack doesn't really take this well, does he? She was worried about telling him. She says that, you know, men are crazy, jealous creatures, and she was mm-hmm. afraid of what afraid of what he would do if he found out. At some point early in the movie, they've talked about people either being killers or about dyers. And then this is re-referenced, where Jack kind of goes a little bit hyper-focused male and starts getting very, very tunnel vision about what he's going to do to the man who's had sex with his wife. Jack is also afraid of death. He wants the pills. He also wants to try Dylar. He goes looking through the garbage. The entire garbage. I mean, there's a huge stack of garbage thrown on the lawn, isn't there? He's looking for the bottle of pills that had been thrown away with two or three left in it. He doesn't find the bottle, but he does find a newspaper, an old newspaper, with an advert in it. The original advert in, yeah. So he phones the number from a payphone, classic Mm. 80s, and he arranges to meet the Dylar doctor. Mr. Gray. And he takes the small gun with him. And he meets him at a neon-lit motel. <laughs> now, Mr. Gray or Dr. Gray isn't taking it too well. His drug has failed completely. He's kind of wallowing in self-pity, isn't he? And not entirely compass mentis, but still able to regurgitate 10,000 fascinating facts about science you never knew. And we recognise him. He's the guy with the scar on his hand. And the wispy hair who had found his daughter's rabbit and he'd seen in the supermarket earlier as well. So he's been sort of haunting Jack's life for a while. And I suppose that scene in his dream in the bedroom is a foreshadowing of his wife cheating, isn't it? His wife is absent from the bed, the marital bed, and that guy is there. So I suppose that's what that scene is all about. He has a discussion with his doctor, but in the end, he shoots him, doesn't he? Yeah. In the bathroom. It's yeah, quite comically. Red, he's got a red <laughs> toilet in that motel. Bright red porcelain toilet. He shoots him on the bright red porcelain toilet twice. Badly. In the shoulder. Non-fatally. And then he tries to make out like it's a suicide by putting the gun Assuming in the hand. guy's dead, he's not. He's just been knocked out. He's shot for a couple of minutes. So well, it lays it's a the very, gun down. It's a very small caliber pistol, isn't it? It's like a twenty-two or something. Or yeah, not even that. I think a close point blank magic will kill, but you know, one, it's not going to accurate with such a short barrel. It's not going to fire accurately, is it? And so this guy is still alive, and as <laughs> momentarily as Jack is distracted because his wife turns up, he gets shot by the guy, hits him in the arm, and ricochets into his wife. Right, so a comedy of errors there. And nobody's dead. They take they take him belatedly, somewhat begrudgedly, to an emergency admissions, which is run by, run by, by nuns. German nuns who happen to be atheists. <laughs> I thought that was a funny moment, genuinely funny Admittedly, moment. Admittedly, yeah. This is like a Monty Python moment. Almost. It is Monty Python-esque, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Who start berating them for asking them about the angels placed around the hospital, saying that's for you, not for us, kind of thing. Yes, that's right, yeah. And then they briefly touch on, which I think might be the thesis, the nuns touch on, might, might be a semi-thesis of the, of, the, of the movie, which is about belief versus knowledge, and that in order to survive, we need to have stupid beliefs. Huh. Interesting. And very quickly afterwards, the supermarket becomes a temple of belief, doesn't it? The book, of course, does not end in quite the same way, and I'm sure there's many different modifications that have been made. You choreograph this film ending, by the way. 
we should just explain the end of this film now. Presumably, Jack and his wife survive. Oh, maybe they don't. But the end of the film is filmed in the supermarket, and it's a dance number to <laughs> LCD Sound System. Really good song. Great song. Everyone is dancing through this amazing supermarket, which is so cool, that supermarket. I love the aisle where all the but they're products... Proffering, are- they're proffering products to each other as if they were religious ornaments or yes. religious offerings, you see. In the book, apparently, it ends with them going up a hill, possibly to see the smoke plume. They have... A, I think Jack gives a talk about the spiritual nature of the supermarket. So in the Similar, film, but... they've done an interpretation. And to, to my mind, this is the best bit of the film. <laughs> a, cinematic, a cinematic reinterpretation of the ideas, I think, encapsulated at the end of the novel. Yeah, so... What are they saying? Are they saying that prescience and knowledge of the future and our knowledge and our informational knowledge is stopping us? It's that knowledge that's making us fearful. Without knowledge, we cannot have fear, can we? Sure. And so it's it's a postmodern idea that, okay, God doesn't exist, but as humans, we need to believe in him. So we might as well do it, okay? Embrace the vernacular, not because it's true, but because it's conveniently true for our status and where we are in life. Fear of death is made real by taking a pill about your fear of death, isn't it? I mean, there's no no better expression of being afraid of death than taking a pill every day. (laughs) (laughs) So it might be down to aspiration. Yeah, why do we aspire? Why do we aspire so much, particularly from the 70s and 80s? Why have we become so materially aspirational anyway? I mean... Nobody gets out of this thing called life alive. Alive, so, no, that's true. Yeah. We can't take it with us. Can't take it with you. No. I loved the aisle in the supermarket where all the products were black and white. You're just white with black writing on them. That that's a, I, I think that's aisle. the problem with postmodern ideas is they don't aim to be grandiose. And so ultimately they just they end up being a homily and a truism, don't they? You can't get out of here alive. Can't take it with you. So don't think too much about things, you know. And that seems to be a lot of postmodernist conclusions, doesn't it? Is that life's a mess, life's confusing, there are no gods and there are no icons, so just sit your Lady Madonna on your mantelpiece and carry on with it. Don't think too much about it. Which I guess, you know, in the 90s and 2000s, people were saying postmodernism is a reactionary kind of thinking, isn't it, in a certain sort of way. It's not a progressive form of thinking. Sure. I mean, isn't a response to that, though, surely, is that's what you're bringing to it. I mean, if you're if you're thinking in simplistic homilies, then that's all you're getting out of it. But if you if you bring something else, a bigger idea, then it it will contain it because then they've not preloaded it with those ideas. Isn't that the postmodern approach? I, I think I the bigger know. question is: Is this movie a postmodern or a metamodern movie? I don't know. <laughs> Because again, it is very you know, meta. It's very meta. I'll give that. Is it meta modern? I don't know. Like everything, everywhere, all at once, we have this story of this guy and his wife, and there's a thing going on where she's hiding stuff from him. But in the end, you know, they work together and they're reconciled and they dance in the supermarket. It's in that sense, it has heart. I don't know if it's postmodern or meta modern. I mean, doesn't this heart back to great modernist trends? You know, absurdism and surrealism and situationism. Hmm. I don't know if it is anti-modern in that sense. I didn't find this film easy to watch. I know too long, too long, Richard. I know for you it's too normal fucking long to watch the films in different parts. 
yes. like, chapters of a book that you put down and pick up again. Yes. Snatching glimpses of a film in in the passenger seat of your car. <laughs> Richard, stop it. Looking over the shoulder of the third of someone. time you said that, and it's not true. <laughs> it's not true. Well, there's nothing true, wrong with Richard. If you live in your car, there's nothing I wrong with I don't watch the movies in the car, Richard. <laughs> but I could not watch this movie all in one go. I had to stop oh, at right. least twice. Okay. For me, well, think back to the times of organs in movie theatres. You would have a break halfway through your movie, wouldn't you? You'd have an interval, yes. An interval. Someone would come around with a concessions tray and sell you tubs of ice cream with a back cardboard. Back before the day, lid. back in the days when we lived life as life, yeah? We weren't there to take photos of what we're doing to show people that to confirm our existence. We just went to the movies, had a good time, didn't worry about time too much, had a break. I think we should bring that back, Richard. I'm fully behind you. These days, you can pause a movie, go to the toilet, have a meal, come back and carry on. In your underpants. In my case, I slept on it and carried on the next day. But I could not go through the whole movie. It is quite long. And so also, at no stage did I have any understanding of where it was going. <laughs> so are we heading scorewards? It sounds like we are. How do you feel about the movie as a whole? Do you feel you know the book or want to read the book? As a I, I do want to read the book. It's made me sort of go back to my Kindle and start reading the two books of his that I have. So, yeah, I, I, I do want to read the book, particularly after this movie. I mean, I, I'm kind of in a duality about this movie, I have to say. There's two parts of me that respond to it in two different ways. Really? Interesting. Yeah. I, I kind of, whether it's metamodern or postmodern, there's something that I can't quite... I don't like the taste of the kind of frippery and flimsiness of this kind of approach to portraying human life. It just feels a little bit shallow somehow. I mean, It felt a little bit at times... Like Airplane. Watching... It feels like the movie Airplane or like Monty Python. It feels yeah. just like very throwaway comedy. Well, it's, it's a product of the 80s. But it's not meant right? to be, is it? No, it's, it's meant to be deep. Yeah, yeah. It's a problem. It doesn't quite sit. It's like watching a philosophical equivalent on Stranger Things, isn't it? It is. Performed by a clown kind of thing. You know, <laughs> It's very... So it, it doesn't quite sit well, but I've always been that way with postmodern efforts, you know, or, or metamodern efforts or whatever. On the other hand, uh, it is incredibly well scripted. Whether it's just taken wholesale from a novel, I don't know. But the, the precocious kids are just worth, worth watching for the stuff they come out with. It's just I would like, watch an entire sitcom of that family and those yes. kids. Yes. The kids are a definite boon, okay? They're just so witty and their ideas are just so off the wall but so intriguing and exciting at the same time. They're just great to watch. I, yeah. I, I did like the dynamic between Jack and Babette. You know, they are that kind of slightly eccentric intellectual <laughs> couple that aren't quite connected to the real world. There is a sense of ivory tower to Jack and his stupid Hitler studies and all that kind of stuff. And there is the light satire on on the US college life, which yes. these days we can't yeah. laugh at because it's, it's become a right-wing, left-wing thing about safe spaces. But that side of progressive politics back in the 80s, I think, was something that was could take a more gentle sort of humorous knocking, couldn't it? Okay. And so yeah. very definitely, that's quite nicely sent up, isn't it? But I do hear that he's a novelist that focuses on one kind of humour, which is focusing very much on characters and how characters are limited and humorous. And I kind of got that in the portrayal of a professor, you know. He's not quite in the real world, is he? 
not quite there. So, so yeah. Directed so I like by, lots of it. I like lots of it. Directed by Noah Baumbach, and mm. I think he also wrote the adaptation effectively along with Don DeLillo, who's I think did he? Is Don DeLillo still around? Okay. He was born in 1936, so it would be amazing if he's... Well, he could still be alive, couldn't he? So you say, how do I feel? I felt lots of it was laugh out loud funny. There are some really, really funny moments in this. I, 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 I can see from the symmetry, you know, they're talking about death before Hitler and, you know, the crowds, and then I can see there's all kinds of, like, essentially postmodern symmetries we're supposed to enjoy here. But what it builds up to is ultimately... A kaleidoscopic mystery, isn't it? Like in so many of these things, it's kind of like somehow the author is saying, I'm cleverer than you are, readers. I'm cleverer than you are, audience. And I don't like the taste that leaves. Not many audience members did, did they? Because according to your <laughs> box office figures... $75,000. No, you said yeah. 250000 Well, seventy five. Seventy-nine thousand. Okay, it may. That can't be true, Paul. It is true. It is true. I think because it had an intentionally limited release. Paul, if it, it cost a hundred million, yeah, eighty million. I've got eighty million here. You, yeah. you say a hundred million, and it made seventy-five thousand. But I assume that Netflix <laughs> have bought it, haven't they? Right, and then what are they going to do with this? <laughs> Turn it into gold bricks and sell it. <laughs> A24, by the way, production company. I know, A24, yeah, our favourite. But there we go. So, I don't know. I mean... Hmm. Well, what are you going to give the acting, then, as a score? I loved the sort of slightly dysfunctional functional family and the, the second marriage wife, husband, you know, sharing the kids from, from, from their previous families. So, yeah, the acting was, I thought, on... On spot. Sorry, on... What's the what's that phrase you use? On fleck? Was it fleck? On fleek. On fleek. On fleek. <laughs> what does that it's mean? Just, I think is it it's about eyebrows? for eyebrows. Oh, yes. it is yeah. about eyebrows. But I thought very much it was on point. That's what I'm trying to say. It was on point, okay? So for me, an eight and a half. I don't know how you feel about that. Yeah, very fair. It's eight or nine. Eight and a half is a, oh. probably a good score for the acting. Yeah, Adam Driver is great. Greta Gerwig is very good. The kids are all amazing. Strong. Okay, plot, postmodern pyromaniac kind of attitude to clever cleverness doesn't sit well with me, but at the same time, it did have a beginning, middle, and end, although what they were doing there, I'm not entirely sure. Kind of fun. It kind of all made sense. I'm going to give it a seven. I'll give it a six. I'll give it a six. Doesn't totally hang together, but, no. you know. But it's not meant to, is it? I don't think no. so. No, again, it's not about college, really. It's not about disasters really it's not about consumerism really really it's not about drugs or pharmaceuticals it's not about family really. dynamics really really exactly <laughs> it manages to touch and not be about all of these subjects yeah <laughs> yeah dialogue though we could do a dialogue score maybe dialogue well you've got to score it high i think haven't you oh yes it's so you were saying it was very staged it was obviously dialogue there to present intelligent advanced thoughts did it work yeah i never actually thought i never actually thought well you know they're speaking in a very theatrical way it doesn't work it did work absolutely yeah no i'll give it an eight i'm gonna give it i'm gonna go a bit high i'm gonna go nine on dialogue oh i don't know what category we do for a postmodern 
So everything, what was the movie before we watched that we quite enjoyed? Everything, everywhere, everything, all everywhere, all at once. Okay, so postmodern pizzazz and powwow, did it have it or not? Self-referentiality, Or maybe? metamodern. Huh. Metamodern milkiness, did it have it or not? Yeah, I mean, it has this stuff about car crashes, doesn't it? And being all mm-hmm. about life. And... and then crowds and Hitler it has. Yes. And crowds and Elvis it has. Yeah, so I'll give it a seven for its post. But no, that is really about death, though, is it? Well, the Hitler stuff is, but no, it's about the fear of death, so it doesn't tie in, does it? I think that's especially postmodern. <laughs> exactly. So ultimately, it doesn't really go anywhere, and that's the problem that I have here. All right. So what's your postmodern, what's your PM score then? Thoroughly respectable 7.5. I did enjoy the movie. It is an enjoyable movie. I'm not sure you can grow much with it, but nonetheless. Is that your overall score? Yeah, 7.5. Okay. I'll give it a seven. I went six on the last one. Yeah. What do we do next week, Paul? Well, I've got four in the trough. And do I get to choose now? You do, for you to munch on. Okay. If I can read my writing, which is debatable. Interstellar needs no introduction. Christopher Nolan. And we're planning to see Oppenheimer shortly at the end of July. Now, I believe this is starring the old Timothy Chalamet. Yes. Bones and all. Bones and all. I think it's newly released on Amazon Prime. Now, I'm never a first album kind of guy, but I did discover Timothy a lot earlier than other people. So I'd like you, therefore, just to throw in for a bonus mix and match, Hot Summer Nights, which is one of his earlier outings, 2017, I think, where he plays a sort of a, a small-town, renegade, teenage drug dealer who has to escape lots of people. Hmm. Okay. Finally, I don't know much about it, but I think you know more about it than me. Oculus, which is 2013, some way back, but has rave reviews. So there we go. Bones and all has rave reviews too. Okay. Well, let me so think. entirely up to you. I want to go for the new to Amazon Prime, Bones and All. Okay. With our Dune, Paul Atreides, Timothy Chalamet. We're trying to build up to two big releases this year. One, obviously, is June 2. So, Timothy, that's why Timothy's on the on the slate today. And the other one is, of course, Christopher Nolan's soon-to-be-released Oppenheimer. Hence, we've gone on a Nolan tip. You did, uh, did you do a 23andMe kind of genealogical DNA thing, Paul? I did, yeah. Did you... I was hoping for a little bit of paprika, just a little bit of turmeric, a bit of Ashkenazi Jew or whatever, you know. Eastern European, <laughs> Polish granddad somewhere. What percentage? Fortunately, it was all rosemary, sage, and a bit of thyme. Very, <laughs> very homegrown. In fact, 100% homegrown. What percentage Harkonnen did you find that you were? <laughs> right, okay, I've got something to say about that, okay. Harkonnens uh, in the novel do not have red hair. <laughs> that is simply... And on that bombshell, we'll bid you goodbye oh. till next week, where we'll be reviewing... It cuts off. Bones and all. <laughs> Ciao for now, see you in the next one. Goodbye.